1: After Justice Owen Roberts' switch in time that saved the nine in that 1937 case of West Coast Hotel versus Parish, the Supreme Court signaled its move away from Lochner-era economic substantive due process. In the Lochner era, the court had regularly struck down state labor and economic regulations under a substantive interpretation of the 14th Amendment's due process clause. And The court said that the government should not arbitrarily or unreasonably interfere with an individual's liberty to contract whether that meant contracting for the price of labor, for the number of hours one would work in a week, or for anything else. But in West Coast Hotel, when the court upheld a minimum wage law for women in the state of Washington, Chief Justice Hughes asked, what is this freedom? The Constitution does not speak of freedom of contract, he observed. It speaks of liberty and prohibits the deprivation of liberty without due process of law. It's easy to exaggerate the break with Lochner here. Hughes and the majority still defined due process as regulation which is reasonable in relation to its subject and is adopted to the interests of the community. And so they still held out the option of striking down an unreasonable regulation. But the emphasis shifted in a decisive way in this case. The Constitution doesn't say anything about liberty to contract. There's nothing sacrosanct about your right to make contracts for wages or for the number of hours you're going to work. The legislature has reasonable grounds to limit liberty in this area. And besides, Hugh says, even if the wisdom of the policy be regarded as debatable and its effects uncertain, still the legislature is entitled to its judgment. And that brings us back to the heart of the issue. When should the Supreme Court second-guess policy judgments made by the legislature? The court could, of course, say that some policy is unreasonable, But then the legislature could just reply, well, we think it is actually reasonable. That's why we passed it. In that instance, should the court defer to the legislature and legislative judgment? The legislature is, after all, better equipped to investigate, to call expert witnesses, hold hearings, balance interests, and engage in the bargaining process that leads to policy in a representative government. The court, by contrast, is made up of nine life-tenured judges who have no particular policy expertise and no institutional resources to investigate and determine the best policy for any particular community. And in the 1930s, the push against the court was for the judges to simply defer to the economic regulations associated with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal and similar regulations that were being enacted at the state level. And that's what you see, I think, in the turn in West Coast Hotel. And then the year after... West Coast Hotel, we get an obscure case called United States v. Caroline Products, which contains an even more obscure footnote that is nonetheless extremely important for how we understand the trajectory of constitutional rights jurisprudence in the 20th century. The case involved the National Filled Milk Act of 1923. Under Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, that act prohibited the interstate shipment of adulterated milk products that included non-milk fats or oils. The Caroline Products Company was indicted for shipping milk across state lines, and they alleged that the Filled Milk Act was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court disagreed and asserted that they would henceforth presume the constitutionality of commercial or economic regulations. And we probably would have forgotten about the case had Justice Harlan Stone not put in footnote 4. In that footnote, he said this, There may be narrower scope for operation of the presumption of constitutionality. When legislation appears on its face to be within a specific prohibition of the Constitution, such as those of the first ten amendments, which are deemed equally specific when held to be embraced within the 14th. And then he went on to say, It is unnecessary to consider now whether legislation which restricts those political processes which can ordinarily be expected to bring about repeal of undesirable legislation, is to be subjected to more exacting judicial scrutiny under the general prohibitions of the 14th Amendment than are most other types of legislation. Nor need we inquire whether similar considerations enter into the review of statutes directed at particular religious or national or racial minorities, whether prejudices against discrete or insular minorities may be a special consideration which tends seriously to curtail the operation of those political processes ordinarily thought to be relied upon to protect minorities." and which may call for a correspondingly more searching judicial scrutiny. Translation, the Supreme Court will defer to legislative judgments on economic regulations. It will simply presume that the legislation is constitutional, but the court will not be so deferential on every kind of regulation. There are some areas where the court will employ what it calls a more exacting judicial scrutiny. These cases include three different categories. The first are those involving rights specifically protected by the Bill of Rights. This is 1938, and a case about federal power. But this footnote also foreshadows the process of incorporation that takes place throughout the 20th century. The second category is legislation that restricts access to the political process. We defer to legislative judgments, but that deference makes sense only if people have a share in choosing their legislators. So the court signals its willingness to police the political process itself, as it increasingly did in its decisions about redistricting, apportionment, voting rights, and the like. And then third... Statutes that are aimed at particular discrete and insular minority groups, precisely those groups that do not have political clout and therefore don't wield power in the political process. Legislation aimed at these groups might then also demand a more exacting judicial scrutiny. And what we gather from this footnote, what law professors simply call footnote four, is a roadmap for what is ahead. The Supreme Court defers to legislative judgments on economic regulations, but it closely scrutinizes laws that violate fundamental rights, such as those outlined in the Bill of Rights, and laws that are aimed at discrete and insular minority groups. This basic framework structures the 20th century court's approach to the 14th Amendment's due process and equal protection clauses, and it helps make sense of the various tiers of scrutiny that emerge in this area of law, and we'll discuss that in the coming weeks. And then finally, it points us toward a form of non-economic substantive due process centered prominently around issues related to reproduction, sexuality, and marriage. As a foundational case in this new substantive due process jurisprudence, consider Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965. That case harkens back to another case we've discussed briefly in episode 7, Meyer v. Nebraska, about a state law making it a crime to teach the German language to students prior to the eighth grade. The court struck down that statute as a violation of the 14th Amendment's due process clause because it unreasonably interfered with the parent's right, and indeed the court said the parent's duty to educate their children, and the right of a teacher to practice a lawful vocation and also the opportunity of a child to acquire knowledge. None of those things are listed in the Constitution, but the court nonetheless went on to include them as legitimate interests that the state should not arbitrarily or unreasonably interfere with. Is that any different than asserting an interest in determining your own wages, or using your property as you see fit, or working more than 10 hours a day? What distinguishes one class of interests from another? Can we say that one form of substantive due process is legitimate and the other illegitimate? The court faced that question squarely, even if not completely satisfactorily, in Griswold v. Connecticut. The case involved the rarely enforced 1879 Connecticut statutes prohibiting the use of contraception and prohibiting someone from being an accessory to the use of contraception. Estelle Griswold, the executive director of Planned Parenthood in Connecticut, regularly counseled married women about various forms of contraception. She was fined $100, and she then appealed her conviction, arguing that the law violated the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. In oral arguments, her attorney, Thomas Emerson, laid out the facts of the case this way.
0: Number 496, Estelle T. Griswold et al., Appellants v. Connecticut. Mr. Emerson. Chief Justice, may it please the court. <clears throat> this case involves the validity of the Connecticut anti-contraceptive statutes. There are two statutes involved, which are printed on page 3 of our brief. The first one, which I will refer to as a use statute, provides that any person who uses any drug, medicinal article, or instrument for the purpose of preventing conception is guilty of a crime. <clears throat> and the second statute, the accessory statute, provides that anyone who assists, abets, counsels, so on, another to commit any offense may be punished as if he were the principal offender. There is no dispute concerning the facts. Uh, of the case, at least so far as I know. Following the decision of this court in Poe against Ullman in 1961, there was opened in New Haven the Planned Parenthood Center. This was in November of 1961. The purpose of the center was to provide information, instruction, and medical advice to married persons as to the means of preventing conception and to educate married persons generally as to such means and methods. That was the finding of the court in this case.
1: But why would the case violate the Due Process Clause? And why shouldn't the court just defer to legislative judgments in this area? That seemed to have been the lesson of the 1930s. And so listen to this exchange about the issue at stake related to the facts of Lochner and West Coast Hotel.
0: You pitch it wholly on due process with the broad idea that we can look to see how reasonable or unreasonable the decision of the people of Connecticut has been in connection with this statute. We we pitch it on due process in in the basic sense, yes, that it is arbitrary and unreasonable, and in the special sense that it constitutes a deprivation of right against invasion of privacy. Uh, The privacy argument is a... Is a uh, substantially narrower one than the general argument. That's a due process. Sir. That's that's correct. And uh, but you, the you, answer, expect us, you expect us to determine whether it's why, uh, sufficiently shocking to our sense of what ought to be the law. To, because this applies to married people only. Uh, yes, Your Honor, but but it is not it is not broad due process uh, in in the uh, sense in which the issue was raised. Uh, In the 1930s. Uh, In the first place, this is not a regulation that deals with economic or commercial matters. Uh, It is a a regulation that touches upon individual rights, uh, the right to uh, uh, protect life uh, and health, uh, the right of advancing scientific knowledge, uh, uh, the right to have children voluntarily, uh, and therefore, we say we are not asking this court to revive Lochner against New York or, or to overrule Nebbia or West well, Coast Hotel. we to not you asking us to follow the constitutional constitutional philosophy of that case. No, Your Honor, we are not. We are asking you to follow the philosophy of Meyer against Nebraska and Pierce against the Society of Sisters, which but, dealt with no, Meyer, Meyer against but, Nebraska. That's, which, that's which, the one that held that was unconstitutional, as I recall it, for a state to try to regulate the size of loaves of bread. No, no, no. Keep people from being defrauded, was that it? That was the the Lochner case, Your Honor. uh, Meyer against Nebraska held that it was uh, uh, unconstitutional for a state to enact a law prohibiting the teaching of the German language to children who had not passed the eighth grade. And Pierce against the Society of Sisters held that it was unconstitutional for a state to prevent the operation of private schools in the state. And it is, it is, those were both due process cases, were decided as due process cases.
1: Griswold's lawyer, in other words, was arguing for a kind of substantive due process analysis that acknowledged certain unenumerated rights or interests as being protected from arbitrary deprivation by the Due Process Clause, but also sharply distinguished that kind of case from what we saw in Lochner versus New York, Substantive due process was back, if it ever really went away, but economic substantive due process was not. The Supreme Court in Griswold struck down Connecticut statute, but the various members of the court were all over the place in their analysis. Justice William Douglas, in the majority opinion, makes it clear that he's not following Lochner, and he doesn't intend to overrule West Coast Hotel v. Parish. Overtones of some arguments suggest that Lochner v. State of New York should be our guide, he writes. But we decline that invitation, as we did in West Coast Hotel versus Parish. We do not sit as a super legislature to determine the wisdom, need, and propriety of laws that touch economic problems, business affairs, or social conditions. This law, however, he says, operates directly on an intimate relationship of husband and wife and their physician's role in one aspect of that relation. Douglas then goes on to describe this intimate relationship as one that is protected by a zone of privacy that falls within the penumbras or the shadows of the various guarantees in the Bill of Rights. But indeed, this right to privacy even predates the Bill of Rights. We deal here with a right of privacy older than the Bill of Rights, Douglas wrote for the majority, older than our political parties, older than our school system. Marriage is a coming together for better or worse, hopefully enduring and intimate to the degree of being sacred. Wrote Douglas, who incidentally would go on to divorce his third wife a year after the Griswold decision. It's an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony of living, not political faiths, a bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects. Yet it is an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions, Douglas concludes. The upshot was that married couples enjoyed a right to privacy in marriage that prohibited the state from telling them whether and how they might use contraception. And some questions follow. What about unmarried couples? What about abortion? What is marriage? What's the constitutional status of marriage? Is there a constitutional right or freedom to marry under the Constitution? And what about laws prohibiting sex outside of marriage, including but not limited to same-sex relationships? Things move fast after Griswold. In 1971, the court dismissed the case of Baker v. Nelson, arguing for the first time for a right of two men to marry each other, an issue that comes back to the court with different results in 2015. And in 1972, in the case of Eisenstadt v. Baird, the court extended the right to privacy, encompassing the right to use contraception to single people, and not just married couples. It was no longer the right in marriage, but a right of an individual. And in 1973, the court hands down its abortion decision in Roe v. Wade. And we'll pick up there in the next episode with the second life of substantive due process and the thorny constitutional issues in Roe v. Wade.